Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for the show. And today we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 38 and a King's Confession. Would you please join me now in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, and that it is not only true, but it is for our life and for our godliness. And that it helps us, Lord, to walk in a manner that is pleasing to you because only in the scriptures can we know who you are. As you have revealed yourself to us, a God who does not change, but an unchanging God who is faithful and true to your word. And so we can trust you. We can trust you. We can take you at your word. So, Lord, we thank you that your word is true and that it testifies from Genesis to Revelation and everywhere in between of the glory of God in Christ. And so as we consider now Psalm 38 today, I pray, Lord, that we would know for sure of the glory of Christ that is written in your word and that we would know it so surely that we can have confidence and know that you are the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself in the pages of Psalm 38 and of the whole Scripture. So, Lord, I pray as we consider this psalm now that you would help us, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ uh, by learning more about your word from Psalm 38. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen and amen. Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 38. Psalm 38. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has calmed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. (coughs) I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin. I meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I become like a man who does not hear, and in his mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, whose boast against me when my foot slips. (coughs) 
for I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity, I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous, they are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. This is the reading of God's precious word. Psalm 38 is the third of the penitential psalms. These are psalms of confession, psalms of sorrow for our sin. The two that we've already looked at are Psalm 6 and Psalm 32. And the ones to follow are Psalm 51, 102, 130, and 143. And these penitential psalms are important because they show us how to confess our sin. In fact, David in these psalms puts into words what we're feeling and teaches us how to come to God. When we're overwhelmed with guilt, we can turn to one of these psalms and make its words our own. In fact, this is why Psalm 51 was recited in many morning services in the early church. And this is particularly important thing as we come to this passage today to talk about why we need to not only confess our sins, but why the Bible, as I said, and why David in this psalm, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he puts into words what we're feeling and how we're to come to God. Because many Christians today, and many people, quite honestly, they have a religion of feelings. They place their feelings above the Word of God. They interpret life by how they feel. Now, let me be clear. This has a long and a that has a long history in 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 the world of psychology. Because we live in an over-psychologized world, we today place feelings at the center of our life. But let's be clear, the Bible is clear that the human heart is deceitful. That means that we cannot trust, first and foremost, our feelings. And what we need to do is to trust the Lord who has specifically revealed himself in the word of God. This is why we believe that, that the scriptures are reliable, they're trustworthy, they're, they're for our life and for our godliness, they're binding on our lives, they're clear, and they're for every area and every phase of our life. And so when scripture speaks, we are to hear the word of God, and we are to obey the word of God. Because hearing comes from you know, hearing the word preached, we need to hear the word preached, and we need to obey the preached word of God. We, that's why we need to do as Acts 17.11, when we hear the word preached, we are, we are to search the scriptures to see if these things are so. And this is especially important in our current climate and in, in the history of Christianity today that we be Bereans, that we search the scripture to see if these things are so, especially because we have such a religion of feelings today. Now, feelings aren't bad, but here's the thing. What we're going to consider today is how David addressed his feelings, not just as feelings first and foremost, but how David addressed his feelings under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that is totally different from having our faith, 
or our, excuse me, our feelings be our first and our primary guide. Rather, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David teaches us today, is going to teach us today, how Scripture is going to help us to address our feelings, to address specifically our feelings of guilt. And if you're honest with yourself, you have faced these very things in your life. And so this psalm has so much to say to us. So let me come back to this idea that we're talking about here one one more time. Scripture interprets our feelings. We are not to be the interpreter of our feelings. Meaning that Scripture teaches us how to address these things like guilt in our lives with the Word of God. And the Word of God is is enough, it's reliable, it's trustworthy, it's for every phase and every stage of our life. And so we can take Scripture at its word. And some people think that the Scripture is not relevant to my life anymore, and there could be nothing more relevant to our lives than, than a psalm like this that addresses our guilt and teaches us how to deal with it. And so as we consider this psalm, the, the, these penitential psalms, at that, they raise an interesting question that requires an answer. Remember that David was a prophet and that the psalms are all about Christ. In fact, David speaks about his own experience with God in the psalms, but he also speaks for, for Christ. Augustine called uh, Jesus the singer of the psalms. But we come to a problem as we consider Psalm 38. This is a penitential psalm, a psalm of confession as we've seen, and yet we know that Christ was without sin. The scriptures say this in 1 Peter 2, 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. In fact, Hebrews 4, 15 says, In every respect uh, has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin, speaking about Jesus. And so how could the words of Psalm 38 be the word of Christ to us? And in this question, we see the depth of the union between Christ and his church. Christ is the head of the church, and we are the body. The head and the body cannot be separated because they're one being. Christ has joined himself to us so completely that his righteousness becomes our righteousness and our sin becomes his. He did not just wear our sin outside himself like a shirt on the cross. He took our sins into himself and became sin for us. If he had not uh, truly made our sins his own, he could not have paid for them by his death. And this is what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ had no sins of his own to confess, but he is so joined to us that he can call our sins my sins. The head speaks for the body. And we can see this from another angle if we think of this in terms of marriage. When a couple is married, they're now one flesh. In fact, this is what Jesus says in Matthew 19, 6. They are no longer two, but one flesh. And because of that, many times they speak and act as one. A married couple can file a joint tax return because their income and their deductions are viewed as one. And this is true of their larger financial picture, too. If a woman had a college debt when they're married, 
her debts become his. If she had a trust fund, her assets become his. The two have become one. God placed marriage into human society as an illustration of his oneness with his people. From the beginning of time, marriage has been a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul teaches this in Ephesians 5, 28-32, which says, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And therefore, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, 28-32, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And so when we think of marriage, we should think of, uh, uh, think of Christ and the church. We should think of the deep unity of marriage. We have been made one flesh with Christ. And we can see this in the way Jesus identifies completely with his people. In Matthew 25, 35 through 36, Jesus says, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Now, was Jesus himself in prison or hungry or thirsty? No, Jesus wasn't. In Matthew 25, 40, he says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so Jesus is so joined to his people, he says, I am hungry when Christians are hungry. The head is speaking for the body. On the road to Damascus, Jesus says in Acts 9, 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who was Saul persecuting? He was persecuting Christians, but our suffering is Christ's suffering. Jesus is so joined to his body and bride that Saul was really persecuting him. And since we have been made one with Jesus like this, we should not be surprised to hear our Savior call our sin my sin, as he does in Psalm 38, 3. The head speaks for the body. He took our sin as his own so he could pay for our guilt on the cross. That's good news. And not only is it good news, but this is holy ground. Have you ever stopped to think that Jesus saved the church by becoming one flesh with us? If you are a Christian, Christ is so committed to you that he took your sin as his own. Augustine describes the voice of Christ in Psalm 38 when he says, The head speaks the words of the body, whilst you hear at the same time the accents of the head itself also. And yet do not either, when you hear the voice of the body, separate the head from it, nor the body when you hear the voice of the head, because they are no more twain but one flesh. And so as we read the words of this penitential psalm, we discover that David is describing his own experience. David is suffering as a result of his personal sin. He is about to collapse physically and emotionally under the weight of God's anger as he calls out to God for help. And this could be describing how he felt after his sin with Bathsheba, but there may have been other times of sin and suffering in David's life that the scriptures don't tell us about. And yet David is a prophet, and here he's speaking about Christ, Jesus identified with us, took our sin as his own, and suffered in our place and for our sin. The weight of God's wrath and anger crushed Jesus, and he called out to God for help and rescue. 
We can divide this psalm, Psalm 38, into three sections, each of which starts with a prayer to God. First, David begs God to be merciful as he disciplines him in the first eight verses of this psalm. And then he confesses his own weakness. No one but God can help him in Psalm 38, 9 through 14. And finally, David puts all of his hope in God. By faith, he believes that God will answer him, as we'll see in Psalm 38, 15 through 22. And yet first, David starts out by calling out to God for mercy. God's hand is heavy on David, and he begs for relief. The very first verse of Psalm 38 is identical to the opening prayer of Psalm 6, when it says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Does this mean that David does not want to be rebuked or even disciplined? No, that's not what the passage is saying. In the verses that follow, he does not deny that he has sinned, but he freely admits his guilt. We should welcome a godly rebuke when it's deserved. As David says in Psalm 141 verse 5, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. If the rebuke of a righteous man is a kindness, how much more kind is a rebuke from God himself? And so in Psalm 38, verse 1, the word rebuke and discipline describe God more as a teacher than a judge. God is a father who disciplines us as his children for our good to teach us and to train us in righteousness, as Hebrews 12, 7 through 10 tells us. And the emphasis in verse 1 of Psalm 38 is on the last words in each phrase, in your anger and in your wrath. And so we need to ask the question, why is David worried that God is acting out of anger? This discipline is so painful and seems so harsh that he feels that the Lord has turned against him. And David here is describing the physical and the emotional distress that he is going through. Psalm 32, 2 through 8 says, For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. There is no doubt that this particular sickness and pain was God's punishment for David's disobedience. And we know this because David repeats the words because of three times in verses 3 and verses 5, because of your indignation, because of my sin, because of my foolishness. He suffered physically and emotionally. For his sin. And since David also spoke for Christ, this was our Lord Jesus' experience too. There was no reason that he should suffer like this. He had no sins of his own for God to rebuke or to discipline him. But he took our sins as his own and he suffered God's punishment in our place and for our sin. God was indignant at our Lord Jesus because of us, and Jesus was devastated. And through his suffering and death, Christ turned away God's anger and God's wrath at our sin. And this is what the scripture describes as propitiation. Propitiation means that God was angry and set against us as his enemies. And yet he loved us so much that he sent his son to die in our place and for our sin and to remove his wrath from us. And this is what the apostle John says in 1 John 
4.10, which says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And, dear Christian, this is vitally, vitally important. In fact, if you're a Christian going through some trouble or some sickness, you can be 100% sure that God is not angry with you. But how can you know this? Because Jesus is your propitiation. God cannot be angry with you because Jesus made himself favorable to you through his death on the cross. By faith, dear Christian, you know that God is for you and that everything he does to you and allows into your life is for your good. Romans 8, 28 tells us this, that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And so you can be confident as you pray with David in Psalm 38, verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. You see, God cannot discipline you in wrath because Jesus bore God's wrath. Any discipline he gives you can only come from his love, and that is for your good. And with that in mind, God does discipline us for our sin. Like arrows, his punishments fly silently and swiftly and sink deep to penetrate us. And it might seem strange to think that God shoots arrows like he says in verse 2 at his own people. And this should just show us how terrible and how dangerous our sin really is. Sometimes the best thing God can do is to wound us so deeply that, that he can give us real life, eternal life in the world to come. This is not the prosperity gospel. God is at work. God's discipline helps us to grow in Christ. And, but we need to recognize that sickness or even suffering is sometimes God's discipline, but it's usually not. And this is important because when we suffer, we can get just depressed and we can think God isn't for me. God isn't interested in me. What did I do to get God's displeasure? And so at that time, Satan brings up the old list of our sins that have already been forgiven, and Satan is cool enough to torture us with our past sins. And at that point, if we're Christians, we need to believe that we have truly been forgiven. Our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. We need to stop replaying the record of our sins if we have confessed them. First uh, John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And yet, we also need to come back and say, sometimes like Job, we suffer precisely because we're obedient. After all, Job 1.1 says that Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. We all know godly people have suffered from cancer, genetic disease, and a variety of painful diseases. And yet, we need to be honest. This perhaps wasn't a result of sin. God sometimes allows the godly to suffer so that their face shines like a light in a dark world. In fact, he is honoring them and he's showcasing the beauty of their godly life. And through sickness and disease, God reveals their faith to a watching world and to a universe of, of spirits and angels. This is a beautiful and a precious thing and those faithful Christians will receive their reward. And yet we also need to say that God has his purposes in mind. In John 9, Jesus met a man born blind, and his disciples asked who had, who had sinned to cause this blindness, the man or his parents. And Jesus said in John 9, 3, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, 
but that the works of God might be displayed in him. In this case, God's purpose was so that Jesus could reveal his glory by healing him. Now, if you're going through some sickness or suffering, it is possible that God is disciplining you for your sin like he was David. He may be turning up the heat in your life so that you will deal with unconfessed sin in your life. In fact, maybe he's pushing you to break a habitual pattern of disobedience in your life. And if that's the case, you can trust that the Holy Spirit will make this plain to you. And that means that you should examine your heart in light of Christ, in light of the teaching of Scripture. But you don't need to become withdrawn, and you don't need to become introspective. If God is dealing with your sin, He wants you to know what He's doing, and He will make it clear through the teaching of His Word, which He uses to shine a light by His Spirit into our lives. But remember, your sickness or your suffering may have nothing to do with your sin at all. There are any number of reasons of good plans he could be working out through the dark threads he weaves into your life through the providence of God. Ultimately, you need to trust that God knows what he's doing. Now, David moves from God's discipline to his own weakness. And as God's hand is heavy on him, he knows that there is no one but God to help him. This is the point of verses 9 through 14, is that David has nowhere else to turn but God. There is no one that could possibly rescue him from the hand of God. And this is true. If you're struggling with guilt today, there is no one that you can turn to. There is no guru. There's nobody on the face of this planet that can help you, that can rescue you, that can help you to address your sin other than for us, for anybody to point you towards the person and the work of Christ who is altogether righteous, and he is the only one who can pardon you from your sin. That's why I said we can point people to the source of forgiveness, but only Christ can pardon the guilty. And he did when he said in John 19, 30, it is finished. That is what he was doing. He tore the veil from the top to the bottom that separated us from God forever. And so only through Christ can we be forgiven. Now, David says that he has no strength in himself. In Psalm 38, 9 through 10, he says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. Now, there's no one more lonely than a broken-hearted sinner, but God knows your heart's desires and he hears your sighs. David longs for everything to be all right again, for life to go back to the way it was. He longs for health and well-being, for this discipline to end, but as he opens his heart to God, he confesses that he is powerless to heal himself. And so his strength fails. His friends friends have failed him. His enemies are surrounding him. Psalm 38, 11 through 14 says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague. And my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no rebukes. This is a picture we need to understand of isolation, of rejection, 
And this was fulfilled by none other than the Lord Jesus when he went to the cross and paid the penalty in our place from and for our sin. His disciples had all fled, even Peter who vowed to stay with him. And Luke tells us that when when Jesus died, all his friends and all of his followers stood at a distance watching what happened to him in Luke 23, 49. And he is probably alluding here to Luke uh, or Psalm 38, 11. We sometimes feel like we're abandoned when just when we need our friends the most, the people we thought we could count on have drifted away. In our better moments, we think to ourselves that people simply don't know what to say, but we're alone in it, and it really hurts. And it's good to know that David felt this way too. And it is good to know that Jesus felt this way too. Jesus was alone, but he will never leave us alone. And that, my friends, is a vital thing to say in our day. According to the state of of theology, which Ligonier Ministries, in in conjunction with LifeWay Research, puts out, they, they tell us that many American Christians today think that God can change. And what we're discovering is that God doesn't change. He cannot change. He is unchanging. That means that Titus 1-2 is correct. God cannot lie. We can take God at his word. We can trust God. We can take him at his word. His word is reliable. It's enough for us. So when we're going through uh, seasons where we're lonely when we're struggling with guilt and we can look to Jesus as Hebrews 12, one through two says, the author and finisher of our faith, we can trust that Jesus Christ is enough for us. And if we're Christians, this should remind us not to leave a brother or sister alone when they're struggling. We may want to pull back because we don't know what to say. We're uncomfortable. We may want to pull back because we know that this believer is suffering the consequences for their sin. We may be worried what people will think uh, if we speak to them, if we reach out to them. But we need to not be like Job's friends. We need to explain. We don't need to explain why these things have happened as if they had special access to the mind of God. We just need to be there. In fact, that's sometimes the best thing to do. Is just to listen and to let the person know after they're done that you'll be praying with them. And can you pray right now? That's that's some of the best things that you can do. If you don't have any words to say, let them know that you'll take them before the throne of God. Now, David ends by putting his trust in God. Psalm 38, 15 says, But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. You know, waiting, we have to be honest, is hard. Waiting in line for our food is, in, in a fast food culture, is hard, especially if you're hungry. Waiting for anything in life is hard. But let's be honest, waiting on God is one of the hardest tests of faith. Does God know? Does he see? Does he care? Nothing's happening. Will he, will he do anything? And David strengthens his faith by giving reasons why he knows that God will act in Psalm 38, 16 through 20, which says this, For I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall. My pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good and accuse me because I follow after good. 
And now the word for in verse 16, it teaches us that David is explaining why he knows that God will answer his prayer. There are five reasons given in this verse. First, God will answer because his enemies should not boast over him. David was God's anointed. And if they gloated over him, they gloated over God who committed himself to David. God's glory is on the line and he knows that God will answer Second, David has already slipped and he's about to fall. Verse 17, if God waits any longer, it'll be too late. Third, he has confessed his sin. He's not hiding from God. God's discipline has done what it, what it was designed to do. And fourth, his enemies are strong. There are many and he is alone. And finally, they hate David because of his good and godly life. And so David lays these reasons before God to strengthen his faith. And he ends with a closing prayer in Psalm 38, 21 through 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. You see, Jesus was forsaken, so we would never be forsaken. He was alone, so we would never be alone. And since God poured out his wrath on him, we know that God is for us. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He made haste to help us since we know that we needed him. The Lord is our salvation. So maybe today you're listening to this, you're watching this. Maybe you're driving somewhere. Maybe you're working. Maybe you're doing something and you, you wonder, you know what, Dave? I am struggling with guilt. I am struggling in, in a lot of areas. I'm struggling with loneliness. I'm struggling to deal with my feelings. And let me just say that in every way, Jesus is sufficient for you. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every way and he didn't sin. And that is actually the best news in the world if you really think about that, because this is the same Savior who said it is finished in John 19.30. That means that it's done, it's signed, it's sealed, it's delivered. The forgiveness that you need for your guilty conscience, it's all found in Christ. If you're in a Christian, if you're in Christ, that means if you're in Christ, you're united to Christ by faith in his name. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's because what Christ has done is he has imputed his righteousness to your account. Not because you deserved it, not because you merited it, but because of the goodness of God and because of what Christ has done in satisfying the wrath of God, you are forgiven. You are, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, a new creation in Christ. And yet Paul also says in Colossians 3 that you're to put off the old man and to walk in a manner and to put on the new man, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's who you are. You're to work out your faith as Paul says in Philippians 1, with fear and trembling before the Lord. And that's why we need to continue to repent. The, the Christian life is not just one where we just enter through the narrow gate, where we are converted soundly by Christ and by the irresistible work of the Spirit. Rather, the Christian life is both, Martin Luther and John Calvin said, is one of ongoing repentance. Ongoing repentance of our sin. Ongoing examination through the work of the Spirit in our lives to see how we are progressing. Is there any evidence as, 
as J.C. Ryle said in his classic book, Holiness, that we are progressing in these things and in the, in the, that the fruit of the Spirit is, is, is at work and in, in being demonstrated more and more in our lives. Because the Christian who has, has stalled like a car on the side of the road is an oxymoron. There is no stalling. There is no coasting in the Christian life. To stall to, 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 is to be apathetic. And this is why Lamentations 3.40 tells us to let us examine our ways and return to the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians 13, we're told that we are to examine our lives in light of Christ. And this is a biblical thing. You know, John Calvin used to uh, run uh, at the very end of his days when, uh, in one of his biographies. Uh, that uh, Calvin scholars have written, many of them have written. He used to go down and recount all the many things that he had learned, and he would write them down in his journal uh, during the day. And then he would go over those things, and he would give thanks to God. In the same way, every day we should look down the course of our lives before we finally put our head to sleep, and we should cast ourselves on the mercy of God, because it's God who gives us life and breath. It's the Lord who, by His grace, causes us to live and move and have our being. There's nothing in our lives, whether we're driving uh, to the store from our house, or we're going on a long-distance drive, or we're hopping on an airplane and flying all the way across the world. At every single moment of every single day, the Lord is causing the cells in our bodies to work. When we eat, God is helping us uh, to, for the food to digest properly in our bodies and a thousand other things. The Lord is upholding and sustaining the universe by the word of his power so that we can breathe air. And the very fact that we can breathe is a mercy and a, and a gift of God. And this brings us to me to the last point. If you're not a Christian, you are breathing on borrowed air. The Lord owns you. You do not own God. Even in your rejection of God, God is showing you his kindness. The, the kindness of God is that he's giving you life and breath and he's giving you yet another moment even another day to repent, to believe, and to trust in him. And the fact that you think that you can spurn the gift of God, the, the, the grace of God, and you think that you can make it to the pearly gates of heaven, it shows not your intellectual superiority. It shows your arrogance. It shows your pride. And that is why you must repent and why you must believe and put your hope and faith and confidence not in yourself, but only in the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. We are living in this culture in which it's all about me and my feelings and my help and what are you going to do for me? And what God has said is enough for us. It's enough. This is the creator. This is the sustainer. This is the one who upholds you and gives you life and breath. He's enough. Will you confess your need of him 
and believe on him for your salvation. And dear Christian, the reason that you might have a guilty and a a struggling conscience today is because maybe you're not confessing your sin. Charles Spurgeon once said, I have great need of Christ and a great Christ for my need. John Newton, at the very end of his life, he was having memory issues. He said, two things I know, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That's good news. Here's a man in Newton that God used powerfully. Here's a man in Spurgeon who was the prince of preachers, and the Lord used him powerfully, both men powerfully. And yet they knew No matter how far they progress, they never progress beyond their need of Christ. This is why 1 Peter 5, 6 says, before it tells us to cast our cares on the Lord, Peter tells us to humble ourselves before God and under his mighty hand. That's good news. Because by humbling ourselves before God, we are recognizing God both for who he is and what he is. He's unchanging. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and that means that we can trust him. We can take him at his word because he'll never lie. He will always act act consistently and coherently with his revealed word. So, dear Christian, yes, the reason that you might have a guilty conscience today is God is calling you to, to trust him, to take him at his word, to confess your need, ongoing need of him. And he is, he is working. The, the thing is, is the Holy Spirit is using the, the preached word, the word that you read and study and meditate on. He's using that word to, to massage the truth of Christ more and more into our life. And so how can we not respond to that? with repentance and trust and confession of our sin. That's the only proper response. In fact, the heart that is postured rightly towards God is one that responds to the word with fear and trembling before God. That's the proper way to respond to a sermon. Yes, you can be encouraged. Yes, you can be you can be thankful. Yes, you should lift up your hearts and gratitude to God, but always as we listen, as we hear sermons, we should be thinking, you know what, how, how is the Lord revealing himself through this text, not just to me, but how is he speaking into my life? And one of the ways that this psalm speaks to us today, especially to those who have guilty consciences, who are morbidly introspective is to confess your need, confess your dependence, and then trust in the sufficient Christ who alone can pardon you, who alone can forgive you, and who alone will never who alone never changes. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who never changes and that we can always trust you because you are righteous and good and holy and just and perfect in all of your ways. And so we love you, Lord. We are so thankful for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith. And Lord, we pray that you would open eyes and ears to hear 
your word today, that they might come to know you as Lord and Savior, King and Master of their lives. Help us, Lord, to abandon our apathy on a daily basis and help us to trust more and more in the sufficiency of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.